We're Eternals. For 7,000 years, we protected humans from the deviants. Why didn't you guys help fight Thanos? Or any war, or all the other terrible things throughout history? We were instructed not to interfere. Until now. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we continue part two of our mini Eternals Roundtable on the Dreaming Celestial Saga. This is Angus. In part one, JJ, Doc, and yours truly delved into three questions. How successful was this team of Marvel writers and artists at weaving the Eternals into the Marvel continuity? And what worked for us? And did anything not work for us in how they executed that task? We successfully answered that as well as giving our general impressions about this trade paperback. Now, in part two, we will tackle the next two questions. Did we enjoy the introduction of new characters into Jack's Eternals? And we will share our opinions of Guar, the Priesthood of the Deviants, Corphos, and Eurydices, and Fastos. And we will also address how well we liked the use of the Unimind as a story plot device, and how well did we feel that was pulled off in the saga. We hope you enjoy this celebration of the Eternals as we welcome the Eternals into the MCU this week. Yeah, they were, and that JJ dovetails beautifully into our second question here, and did you enjoy the introduction of these new characters? We know what the reality is going to be for some of these. We're going to see them on the big screen here at the end of the week. But how well were these characters introduced? And did you enjoy the role that they played within the story? So uh, let me throw the first one out there. And, and let's let's uh, tackle this, this introduction of this new big bad, if you will. This Gar character, the Deviant, and his priesthood here of the deviants wow what visual visually i i absolutely loved this character oh my gosh this was amazing uh but but before i get into the personality here let, let's round robin this one uh, jj first what, what was your impression here of this gar character and introduction of the priesthood of the deviants so i think it is a wonderful introduction kind of creating a a subculture within the larger deviant culture but also placing them in a position of kind of the power behind the throne and what does that mean and what's their schemes and kind of slowly coming and in some cases too slowly coming to the realization that everything is coming to a head because of the steps they've taken to achieve a specific goal. And I, I really enjoyed them. And there, Gar is one of these that you just love to hate, a villain you love to hate. I, I want to call out that stylistically, and maybe the, I don't know which came first in this case. If, if I hadn't read the foreword by Gillis, would I have seen Gar the same way? Knowing that John Byrne is the artist who created the initial look of Gar and uh, Sal Buscema kind of completing that role, you know, kind of taking John's notes and, and kind of going from there. I think visually speaking, he has a very distinct look, especially when some of the other artists at the end of the series end up taking uh, taking over responsibilities for penciling from Viscema. But it was 
somebody you really love to hate and really just kind of a nasty really just kind of a nasty figure to just root against and kind of going back at back to what doc brought up it's like at the very end there's this oh well there's you can't completely hate him because you kind of wonder how much he was in control of his own actions so i'll leave it at that but you know it's it's a great addition to it, and it makes it fills in that gap of when we were reading the Neil Gaiman Eternals. I'm like, where the heck did this priesthood come from? It seemed like it was just out of the blue, and it's like, nope, here's where they introduced them. So again, it filled in some gaps, and I think made the deviants more of a culture unto themselves. Yeah, I I love this character. I really do. He is a comic book villain, and, and like to the T. And it's like, like JJ says, you love to hate him. And as you mentioned, Angus, he's like, you know, first introduced as kind of like, you know, the power behind the throne. And then we see him gradually get a little bit more involved in a plot. And then we realize, oh, the plot's about him. I mean, honestly, this should have been called the priesthood of the Deviants saga, not the Dreaming Celestial saga, because it was really about this priesthood. I thought they did a great job with it. I really, th- I thought it was an enjoyable, like a subculture of of the deviants that you know it shows kind of like a little bit of like how they were searching for spiritual side to themselves and you know they just got lost because of you know this this gar is this you know just power hungry but he wasn't just power hungry i think his arc was really well done he comes across as power hungry but i think at heart he really was trying to free and liberate the deviants in general you know all of them not just you know try to do something that benefits himself and obviously, um, it got away from him. What his plan just completely got away from him. And I like how it ended. It's like, like JJ mentioned, you, you kind of feel a little bit of sympathy for him. A little bit. You know, he wasn't going to destroy the world. So, it's, you know, there's a little bit you have to hold back. But uh, I, thought, I thought his arc was great. And I would love to see him in something else. I would love to see him in a movie. I think they would do a really good job with him in a movie. Yeah, I agree. I would absolutely love to see him enter into the MCU. But, Doc, you bring up an interesting point there that Gar basically follows his own belief system, but the way in which that manifests itself within his own culture is rather warped. I mean, you you have a cleansing of the gene pool happening here. Now, that's all I'm going to go into it, because I don't want to get into specifics here and actually spoil plot threads, but uh, that's actually utilized as a as a mechanism here, which is absolutely horrid. And, and, and you really begin to feel for some of these deviants here who, you know, are subjected to such treatment. It's It, it harkened back when when thinking of Jack. Jack was very, did, did he did not blush from utilizing the word Holocaust often in titles of his stories within Marvel. And that is immediately... What came to mind to me here within even deviant culture that they were going after certain certain factions within their own realm just based on how the gene pool dice were tossed. And that was really alarming. It, it, I mean, I know this is a comic book, folks, but within comic books and, and Doc, you and I got into this when we were talking over recently just over on Tales, Tales from the Crypt. There, there's some pretty heady topics here that are introduced within this series when you're reading the the books going oh my gosh this is this is crazy but it's done to such wonderful effect that you begin to feel empathy for what should be otherwise just objectionable characters 
within these pages. And from that standpoint, both the writing team and the artistic do a fantastic job of emotionally binding you as a reader to the story. Yeah, because oftentimes when you get like characters like, like Deviants, either the writers go too far and they make them too sympathetic and all of a sudden you lose kind of the villain of the story. And it's like, oh, they just did a flip-flop. Now we're supposed to feel for the... But I think the writing staff, they did such a great job and they really did keep that balance of... You feel a little bit bad for them, but you also know that, you know, okay, they have a crappy lot in life with their genetics and everything, but they are still trying to destroy everything and they want to, you know, destroy humanity and stuff like that. So I think they did a really nice balance with that. I think I think they just did great with giving the villains a little bit of depth, which is always, I think it's always a challenge, especially in comic books, because sometimes, you know, there's, I mean, we can probably list endless villains who are just one dimensional and they are just bad and that's it. But to get that little subtleties and a little depth to them, I think it really brings out so much more like they did with Gar. He was he was really fun to watch develop. Absolutely. Now, we already have a forbidden love happening here between Thena and Crow. We now get this introduction of Corypheus and Eurydice in here as far as Two artists, and how would you describe this relationship, JJ? And what did you feel about the introduction of this dynamic between these two characters? So I think it's really interesting in that it took the opportunity to show what would an artist be like in each of the different societies, the the eternal musician Corophos who would spend millennia working on a composition and Eurydice who uses hate as a way to fuel her art and the fact that they kind of get they kind of cross over and Corophos sees her artwork and is immediately enamored by it it took me a very long time to place these characters. So you have to think about the Eternals as being, for the most part, a Greek god's doppelgangers, essentially. Right. So I kept going like, well, who are these? Who are these two in the in the story of the Greek gods? And it wasn't until I saw both names next to each other and didn't try to read them, but listen to the way that they were their names sounded. And it really sounds like these are supposed to be Orpheus and Eurydice from the Greek myths, in the sense that Orpheus goes into Hades to save his love who died on their wedding day and bring back her spirit out of Hades. And here you've got Corophos who ends up going into Lemuria, the, the land or the subterranean uh, land and, and kingdom of the Deviants and becomes enamored with Eurydice. And it's kind of that, that, that similarity there. Unfortunately, I don't think they got enough screen time or page time. They, they, there was a lot of potential there for kind of a, a echoing or mirroring of what was going on with Thena and Crow. But I think the one storyline of Thena and Crow just kind of took dominance and, you know, it was kind of cast off as kind of cast off as kind of a, well, you know, the, the, here's another interesting point. It's 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 echoing the theme, but not necessarily carrying it any further. Excellent point, JJ. And as a matter of fact, when you were reading, I got spoiled. <laughs> 
uh, by it and knew who who it would be in, in the book because in that following that tough act by Peter B. Gillis, he does call out those two characters being rooted in uh, Greek mythology, and you you nailed it. Who the two are. Absolutely. So even Peter makes no bones about who the inspiration for those two characters are and the dynamic that they were supposed to embody. But like you said, I I thought it was too much of a tease and and, and not enough uh, getting into more substance because I think their dynamic is absolutely fascinating. And I loved their mating. I thought that was so cool within the comic, and I'm like, wow, you're, you're actually now going to get two artists, one visual, one auditory, from different cultures, but but very clearly, the bard here character, a musician, is enamored with the visual stylings of this deviant, and and truly in love with her art, which I was like, okay, this is this is really, really cool. I, I hope they get built out further. I, I, I truly do. Because I think they are ripe for really adding some weight to these characters. And you could have some real fun with them as a as an artist here from a writer standpoint, for sure. And let's face it, too. Corifus is just the eternal Bob Ross, right? That's the first thing I thought of when I saw that. This is Bob Ross. He's an eternal. This is awesome. Like, but JJ said, 100%. They, like, individually, I wasn't. I was probably more interested in Eurydice, if I'm pronouncing that right, than uh, than Corifus. But then when their relations, when they met, I really wanted to see more. And it was like you said, uh, Angus. It was a tease, and as JJ said, there just wasn't enough pages dedicated to this because that relationship it, it was kind of uh, it was kind of making it was they were kind of finding a common ground that you know like Corifus was like, oh, I can actually see the soul of the deviants in her art. This is amazing, and and it was really it was really building up to something. It seems like it was just kind of like they kind of finished that storyline really quickly. So it was a little bit of a disappointment. I really wanted to see more on those two. I really liked their interaction and how they were coming around. Like art is that common language that can bridge, you know, two different cultures together and, and things like that. I thought it was a really cool theme that just wasn't fully explored. Indeed, indeed. And I, I purposely saved this last character to wrap up this section of our second question because there is confirmation of this character playing a prominent role in the upcoming movie, and that is Fastos. What did we feel as far as this character, who he is, what he represents, maybe some of the values revealed on the page? What were what were the general impressions here about Fastos? Fastos was, uh, he was an intense character. He was probably the most intense character in this story. And uh, he comes across as like, he almost has like a very, very defined vision of like good and bad in you know in his in his own mind, and he doesn't like to get involved with different fights unless he thinks that it's the right thing to do, like it like un, un, unquestionably like the right thing to do. Like in in one um, panel when he was arguing with Icarus about fighting the deviants, and you know Icarus is basically going on his tirade again of how bad and evil the deviants are. They they must be destroyed and blah blah blah. And and Fasto says, have we ever ravaged the land, destroyed the forest, laid low mountains, boiled the oceans, and made our home a screaming desolation without a good reason? Of course not. And so basically he's telling Icarus, he goes, I'm not getting involved. He goes, I don't think this is the right thing to do. 
And I really thought it was a really cool. It's like he has a lot of character. I really want to see what they do with him on the big screen. I think it's going to be a really cool character. Yeah, I agree. I think so. Again, coming back from the the, the analogs in the in the Greek myth, you've got the Hephaestus, the smith or the the blacksmith of the pantheon, right? The creator of things. And here you've got, you know, the same, the same archetype, yet he is absolutely drawing the line. And I think there's, there's a lot of great potential here. There is so much intensity in the character that once he said no to Icarus and joining his, you know, his war on the deviants, you don't see him anymore. He just kind of disappears from the story, which again is a real shame. Now, given that this story over the course of the 12 issues is as complex as it is with as many characters as it has, you know, moving in and out of history, it's it's no small feat to kind of keep everything going. And you may have actors step on the stage for a short while and then step off never to be seen again. So, I can kind of go with that, but at the same time, I I wanted to see a lot more of that character as well. And I'm looking forward to seeing what he has to add to the the movie, how he's interpreted in the MCU and, you know, solidified as a character moving forward. I thought it was interesting how, as you mentioned, he's like, you know, he's like their technologist and he makes these really devastating weapons for everybody, but he's also almost the conscience of these weapons. Where he doesn't want to just, you know, he just not, it's not about making these weapons and let's take over the world and destroy everything. It's kind of like, okay, you've made these weapons now. How are you going to use them? What are you going to do with these? You know, the, the, kind of like the whole Peter Parker with great power comes great responsibility. And that's kind of um, embodied in, in Festos. And I, I thought that was kind of cool. He's, the, he's not only the creator, but he's also the conscience of these weapons. And I thought that was a really cool di- dichotomy in his character. I agree 100% there. JJ, your summary took the words out of my mouth, and Doc, you read my mind by pulling that quote, so I have nothing more to say on Fastos. <laughs> You've already said it for me. <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. It's all good, because frankly, I I would love to cover our, our last question here in, in depth as a plot device, because early indications are from those who have seen an early screening of the Eternals. We are going to see the Unimind again play a role as a plot device. And I have to give Walter Simonson, good old Walt, a lot of credit. He pulled a catchphrase from a very popular nonprofit. And it's actually from the United Negro College Fund. A mind is a terrible thing to waste is actually the title of one of these issues. And that is a reference over to the Unimind, uh, unmistakably. So, so with all of that, and thematically rolling with Walter's use of, of that phrase, how did we feel about this plot device utilization? Understanding that, the employment of it was revealed in one of these tie-in issues. However, without spoiling this... It, it does come back, indeed, in this maxi series. Does this work for us as plot device, and, and are we satiated that? Yeah, you know what? If we're to level the playing field, so to speak, not overpower Earth at any given time, then what was this? Was this necessary? So I, I throw that one out there, JJ. What were what were your thoughts along these lines? So the Unimind is what is created when 
the Eternals give themselves over to to quite literally join into one being. So it's it's kind of the Voltron of the of the Eternals, and it was something that was brought in fairly early on by Kirby. But it wasn't just something that was, and Kirby established the the precedent that other beings could join in as well. It doesn't have to be just Eternals because in the in the first series you have several humans joining in to the Unimind as well, which opens it up to say, well, can any creature, you know, including a deviant, be brought in? And because they all share the same ancestry, can they all be brought together? And so there's the philosophical side of it of we're all the same. We're all made up of the same thing. And the sum is greater than, I always get this phrase wrong. What is it? The the sum of the parts is greater than the individual, something like that. But the whole point here is that it's something greater and it's a connection that goes beyond the, the supposed separations that we have from each other. So as a plot device, it has that philosophical meaning, that metaphorical meaning that says only by coming together can we solve our problems. And I think it it's a great metaphor, and I think it has a it was used very appropriately and helped establish kind of that culmination again of what we've been seeing throughout the whole series. So yeah, I felt pretty good about seeing it. I think it is a iconic element of the Eternals, and it's something that there's some effort involved in it. And whenever it's been presented in the past, there's it's not done lightly. There's a reason for it to be so. JJ, indeed, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. That is an outstanding pull. That was an outstanding pull to describe the, the Unimind and this dynamic going on. Doc, what were your thoughts? I, I really love the, the, the concept of the Unimind for everything that JJ just said. I think it's it just shows how, you know, it's like at, at, in the end, we're greater together than separate. And I think that's a dramatic way of, of making that point. As the story, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that can be so easily overused and exploited to the point where, you know, they put the, they could put the Eternals in these great, like overwhelming battles where there's no way they're going to win. Oh, wait, they're creating a uni mind and then they wipe everything out. You know, that kind of thing. It could be overused that way. I'm not saying that's what they did here, but it can be. Like, for example, I think it's in the fourth volume of the Eternals where they, they retconned it and they said that you only need three Eternals to create a uni mind. Well, that to me, it's like kind of like, it, it's, it's kind of like going against what the uni mind was originally, that it's all the Eternals coming together. So little things like that, it like bothered me with it. And honestly, if I didn't read the other Eternals that we read, like when we did our round table, was it last year? I would have probably been a little bit like, what the heck is this Unimind? I don't think they did a great job of bringing it in to this story um, and explaining it as well as they probably could have to if somebody was just picking up, this is the first Eternal series they read. I think they might be a little bit confused with it. Uh, that's, that was the only thing, probably the uh, the biggest problem I had with it. And it, and it is. It's like, and, you know, sometimes it feels like they write themselves into a corner and then they're like, oh, it's the Unimind. There you go. We can just use this. Right. It's it's very it, it can so feel like a Deus Ex Machina where it's just it, it's the ultimate problem solver, but I don't I don't think that they used it that way. I think they used it purposefully. But the other thing is that whenever they've done it in the past, in the past in the stories, it was done to achieve 
a decision. A decision had to be made, right? And so that's how they decide who the next the next leader of the Eternal was after Zurus passed away. And, you know, it's a decision-making tool more than anything else. And so in this series, though, we start to see it move because most of the Eternals have now, you know, thanks to the storyline that was in the Avengers, this, most of the Eternals have moved off into space and they formed their own Unimind. So the majority of the Eternals are now exploring the vastness of the cosmos. And there's only a few left behind. I could buy that the Unimind has a different bent or flavor to it now. It's something different than it was before, because before it was all of the Eternals. Now it's some subset of the Eternals, and what's the purpose behind it? JJ, that is an important nuance that you're bringing out there, and really to facilitate now the storytelling within the MCU, uh, that that's a necessity, because you know to, to have it in two extremes, you either have a Unimind, or you have this ultimate cast of characters that were each be deserving of their own film is completely unwieldy. Uh, yeah, from that standpoint, I, I'm in full agreement with both of you that it is a very effective mechanism, plot device, a problem solver for getting us to a point of character management, frankly, within not only the pages of the comics, but now ultimately what we're going to be seeing out of the MCU on the big screen. So when we've been covering this fantastic saga and the story, we really have laid into a lot of the writing aspects of this. I, I would just like to wrap up our discussion here, if I will, and, and please feel free to, to backtrack to other areas if you've had a, an additional thought as we've been discussing our reading experience here. But what were the impressions of the art and, and maybe share your, your, your top three visual experiences here as you were taking in this saga? I love the art. I think the artwork was fantastic. And I couldn't help but think at one, every once in a while, uh, various times in background characters, I think we got little like kind of nods to Kirby himself um, with some of the faces of some of the, how we always joke about how there are no female faces in Kirby. It's just male faces with long hair. And every once in a while, I would see in the background, it would be, usually be a deviant, of course. Um, and it looked like, you know, one of Kirby's kind of um, female forms, which I thought was really, really funny. I don't know if that was, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it or if that was done on purpose, but uh, I thought it was really cool. One of my favorite pictures in the entire, or panels in the entire um, series was when you see Guar on his throne. He just looks so mighty and he looks like, he just looks like both the warrior and the priest. And he's just commanding this this presence, and that was one of uh, when I I actually took a screenshot of it because I, I absolutely loved it, and uh, I thought it was just um, all the detail that's in it, and you really get to see his character really well. And if you didn't know anything about him, if you just came across this picture, you'd be like, you could you could write your own biography about him, and you'd probably be pretty close to how he turns out in the uh, story itself. And there's other like just come some splash pages that I thought were really good. Some of the big battle scenes. I thought were really awesome with the warships from the Deviants and the uh, the short, the small amount of the Eternals fighting them. I thought the, those scenes were really done really well with the visuals. Again, a lot of details in there as well. And uh, one of the other things I really liked was, we didn't mention the, the character of uh, Dave Chatterton, the suicide that Cersei saves. I thought that was, I mean, that was kind of another character that ended up not really going anywhere, but it was kind of funny while it lasted. 
And when they were at Cersei's party, you also have, what was his name? A reject, the trainee, I think Kinga's trainee, if I believe. And they're at Cersei's party, and uh, and Reject has a little bit too much to drink. And as characters are talking, he's just running around in the background, screaming, making all, like going off on a drunk rant. And I, I just thought that was hysterical. I thought that was a really nice little bit of humor they added in. And uh, eventually, Dave just takes him out with a punch. It was really funny, and that just struck me. I, I like the artwork on that too because we have. I think it was uh, Crow was dressed as a vampire, I believe, because it was one of Cersei's um, dress up masquerades. And it was just, I just was cracking up seeing um, Reject in the background, just going on a drunk rant, screaming at nobody in particular. <laughs> Those three things really, like, they really just stuck out to me. <laughs> so I think Sal Biskema was a great choice for this series as a, as a follow-up to Kirby, because Sal has a very epic feel to the drawings he uses uses the panels uses the pacings very well you know dynamic poses just really really a spiritual successor a visual successor to kirby and you know it's not kirby ultimately we know that but at the same time i think he captures the flavor the excitement the intensity and even in the beginning when there's a lot of word balloons, there's a lot of talking going on, there's a lot of dynamic lighting that's happening in the scenery. And you get a sense of, you know, when you're in Olympia versus when you're in Lem Lemuria, you know that there's a big difference between the two and they're handled very differently in the way they cast shadows and the way that there's a lot of light and the mechanical machinery that surrounds both of the the Eternals and the Deviants has this very distinct flair to it. So I think that overall it has a very, also it has a very consistent look to it, which towards the end wasn't you know, I was a little worried. I knew that Walter Simonson took over some of the writing responsibilities at the end of the story, and there were also handoffs of certain artists, and so there wasn't always a lot of consistency there. But overall, visually, things still had a very consistent feel to it. I think things got a little more grounded once Pollard took over in the last couple issues, but other than that, I it was it wasn't jarring. Like you know, you didn't jump from like let's say Jim Lee to Ditko, right? It's it's not like just radically different styles. It was everything had a very consistent look, and so what might have been the case is that the inkers or the embellishers maybe had the kind of the foresight to make everything you know harmonious and and give it that same tonality to it so really really just kind of enjoyed it i thought the covers the covers for the entire series were so well done you've got some wonderful work by pollard and and simonson and seeing them each do their own takes on the Eternals was just just nice. They weren't terribly different from what was going on inside. So it wasn't one of those cases where, you know, again, that jarring, you know, it looks one way on the outside of the book and something totally different on the inside. Again, it was, it was, it had a similar tone and a sense of aesthetics to it that kind of kept it as a really nice cohesive package. Well said, JJ. Well said. I agree. The, level of consistency out of this team just in general 
was impressive. Anytime you're cobbling together a group of creatives to one series, that is no easy task to maintain that level of continuity throughout. Because, let's face it, the instincts of an artist is that they want to express themselves. So the discipline that everyone exhibited to stay in the story lanes, both visually and also plot-wise, to make this maxi happen, kudos. Great job. Absolutely fantastic. And it doesn't hurt that one of your writers in in this group, being Simonson, is also an accomplished illustrator unto himself. So I, I there was for sure some leadership being exhibited throughout this team to make this happen, which which is great. You know, when I was looking at Guar, and I don't know why I thought this, but Guar's visuals reminded me quite a bit of what Ebony Maw became in the MCU when I was looking at Infinity War. I don't know why I thought of that character, but I did. So I think there's some stylistic beats there that maybe perhaps the visual creators were looking at the Marvel pantheon and and gleaming some of these fantastic visuals that came to bear here. And JJ, I'm going back to what you said before. I think John Byrne stylistically created a very memorable villain. It's just outstanding. I I I that that was a a major plus for me. The the other thing visually in the book which I it leaves nothing to the imagination. But the Cersei character. I don't know if this is a holdover or product of her times because comic books have always been designed for the visual pleasure of primarily a male reading audience and adolescent at that are coming into their teens. But I thought it was very clever that within the dialogue here, there is made mention when Cersei is accompanying the professor out of the lecture, she's able to cloak herself from the front in what appears to be very appropriate academic attire meaning either an assistant to the professor or a fellow uh, academic walking down the hallway. But then that student that they pass makes comment that she thought she saw from behind a scantily clad woman. <laughs> and I don't know if that was commentary on the the writer's part to, to call out uh, Cersei's attire or how she is is portrayed in her costume, but it, it, there leaves nothing to the imagination as far as how she's rendered on the pages. Uh, that that stood out to me because she does she stands out from any of the other uh, Eternals characters when you're you're looking at them, whether they be you know male or female. Other than let's say in in, in all fairness, when Icarus is in the wrestling ring, typical you know wrestling attire and. There is a you know celebration of a, a very muscular male form there going on. So other than that, the stylings of Kirby and the integrity of what Jack created within the Eternals world, it, this is a loving tribute. It, it truly is. I, I saw so many of those beats stylistically throughout that I felt I was in the world that Jack created. And from that standpoint, being a Kirby fan, this team did a phenomenal job. Absolutely. Well, 
Doc, JJ, are there any last thoughts that you have with regard to our reading experience of The Eternals, the Dreaming Celestial Saga? I think it was very smart of Marvel to bring this out in preparation for the movie as clearly they're going to be drawing on not only the creations of Jack from the original series and probably some of the beats from Neil Gaiman's series, but definitely some of the characters from this series. So, you know, I'm very thankful that prior to the movie, I've gotten a chance to go through all three of these separate series and kind of see the the breadth of what can be done with the Eternals. Now it's going to be, well, what do they do in the MCU? This I'm just really looking forward to it, to see what beats they choose. And I haven't been disappointed before, so I don't anticipate being disappointed again. I agree. I, I, I can't wait to see what they do with the Eternals, and I hope it is an on-running series of movies, because I think there's a lot to explore here between all the various incarnations of the Eternals. And I really, I mean, they have to bring Guar into this eventually because he is such an amazing character. They have I would I wish they did him in the first in this first movie. I would be so so more excited. But uh, overall, I think um, probably the one thing I was just a little bit disappointed in with the series was we didn't really get a whole lot about the Dreaming Celestial. Uh, he, it was a, definitely a major plot point there, to be sure. But I wanted to hear more about that. And uh, like I said, it was more about the priesthood, which I love that too. So no complaints as far as that goes. I think it's until like the ninth issue where um, we get the actual story of the Dreaming Celestial. So I wanted to see, I wanted to get a little bit more about that. But other than that, I, I thought it was a really fun series. Um, some great new characters in there. Some of the arcs and the individual characters, I think, were fantastic. Yeah, I absolutely love this series, and I think it adds to the toolbox that the writer's rooms moving forward, anytime they're dealing with the Celestials, Eternals, Deviants, and the relationship with humans, can dip into that toolbox and sprinkle that flavor that they're so really, really good at doing at the MCU level into the films. And it really presents itself, meaning the Eternals and this world that Jack created for a very tasteful departure from the formulaic nature of what some of these Marvel films have become. And I'm a huge fan. I, I am an easy get as it relates to a Marvel film. I'm one of those people that, okay, the new Marvel film's out, I'm in the theater and I'm watching it. So you really don't have to sell me. I, I, I'm all in. But with that said... And I was because of seeing all of them, uh, you begin to see some of the formulaic beats that persisted here within these phase ones, twos, threes, and now into phase four. So the Eternals is ripe for a very tasteful departure, but complementary one, though, however. So we're not being dismissive of, you know, the secret sauce here that has gotten the MCU to where it is today, because they've been highly effective in what they're doing. But I, I'd like to leave us all on a quote from Kevin Foggy, the visionary here for the MCU, in what he anticipates this Eternals movie to be. And that is, the whole movie, and this is a quote from Foggy, is a love letter to what one man was able to do with a pencil sitting at a little desk on the East Coast. The other day I was like, how cool that I live in the timeline where William Shatner went to space in real life. Captain Kirk. One of the bummers, you could argue, there are many, of the current timeline that we live in is that Jack Kirby passed before he got to see 
any of this. And indeed, early feedback from the Eternal movies, for those who were able to see an advanced screening, is that this will be visually distinct from any other movie. And that's great. So hopefully they're going to lean into those Kirby visuals, which are very, very distinct. And that this will break from what is traditionally expected of superhero fare. And why not? Because after all, we're talking about a different race here of beings within the Eternals, the same with the Deviants, and of course, the existence of the Celestials. So with that, Doc, JJ, thank you for joining me today for a riveting discussion on this dreaming celestial saga and the Eternals in general. Always a pleasure. Always excited to talk about Eternals and can't wait to see what comes next. I'm an Eternals convert now. I understand why JJ loves it so much. I mean, I like the I like the other two stories, Ray, but this one really solidified it. I really, really enjoyed this story. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a fan now. <laughs>